You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Today, I am glad to welcome Don Keithley to talk about his latest book, Grace on Steroids, Living the Much More Gospel. Don, before we get to the book, why don't you tell us a bit about your ministry? I, I'm pretty much a, a product of religion. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, seminary. Um, I have a PhD. I work my first 35 years in pastoral ministry. I was pretty much a uh, uh, law and grace guy. If you would have mm-hmm. asked me if I believed in grace, I would have said, sure. In 2000, my world got rocked and I began to get a revelation of grace. Uh, I stayed with the church. I've, I actually retired from the building after 50 years of pastoral ministry in uh, 2018. I, I knew about 2016 that um, I felt like the Father was leading me out of the building and into an internet ministry. And so uh, to bring it up to date, I do a Sunday morning, I call it a digital cathedral. And my mm-hmm. audience is pretty much two groups of people. I call them the nuns and the duns. Uh, and the, the nuns are those that have no church, grace church in their area mm-hmm. uh, that they can attend. And the duns are those that are just done with church. They've had it. They feel abused, manipulated, controlled. But they still have a spiritual hunger. They still recognize the spiritual things in their life. So that's that's a big part of my ministry. I'm also the president of Global Grace Seminary. Uh, I started Global Grace Seminary 15 years ago. Uh, I felt like there was no, well, there was no higher education that a person could get with a grace emphasis. Mm-hmm. So I began to contact all the grace guys that I knew uh, and we put together a curriculum, and now we offer bad. We're fully accredited. We offer a bachelor, master, and a doctor's degree. Uh, so I, I'm the president of that. I also do a, a Facebook live on Wednesday night. I call the Secret Place. Uh, I also have a, a little 30-minute program on a small television network called the Now Network. And my latest endeavor, uh, I have secured a complete television network on Roku. And I'm really excited about that. We're going to launch March 1st. Uh, Roku goes into 75 million homes in North America, uh, Europe, Central America, South America. So right now I'm in the process of putting that together with people to teach. I've got guys that are doing podcasts, uh, teachers. I've got a financial guy, all from a grace perspective. The vision is to have a grace network 24-7 where people can go and hear the good news with no bad news. So I'm really excited about that project. So between the preparations I do every week for the teaching, the seminary, the network, um, my wife just rolls her eyes. She said, I thought you were going to retire. And I'm probably more busy now than I was when I was in the building. <laughs> so the ministry is good. I'm really excited. 
I think there's so much going on around the world. I've never seen, I've, I've been through most everything in the 50 years that I was a pastor. I've come through the word of faith, the deliverance, the prophetic. But there's nothing like this grace move that I've ever seen. It's it's a grassroots level. There's no superstars. Uh, everything else that I was involved in had had the guys, you know, the, the, the upper echelon mm-hmm. and then everybody else. In, that was involved, but with grace, what's amazing is there are so many people that are that are discovering the gospel as Paul taught it, as the New Testament post-resurrection presents it, and uh, it's just become a tsunami uh, across the globe. So every day I hear from new people, I hear from pastors, leaders, teachers. Uh, some are in a position where they're they're it's resonating with their spirit, but their mind can't catch up to it yet. They're, they can't get their head around just how good God is. So uh, I, I've never felt the future brighter for the gospel. I'm, I'm positive on what the Father is doing. I know he's got a great plan. And there's just so many people like yourself, Dave, that have caught on and see what he's doing and have just become part of the move. So I'm, I'm chock full of ministry. I do podcasts like this. I'm trying to do less of them just because of my schedule. But I mean, there's guys like you that are just got a hold of it and are in very unique ways, making sure that the gospel is is put out there and spread. So I'm busy. Ministry's good. <laughs> well, I know that I wasn't satisfied. I got to a point where I wasn't satisfied with the, uh, I realized I wasn't satisfied with the Arminian uh, position yes. anymore, and I wanted to fully affirm that grace actually does save, and doesn't just try to save, but it does save. And I also wanted to affirm that God, being no respecter of persons and an equal lover of all human beings, would extend the same grace to everyone. And so when I did that, that forced me to 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 rethink some things. But it was well worth it because once I finally got the grace part at full steam, um, it it really it really changed things for me, and I'm I'm seeing it change things for lots of people. Yeah, I'm, my background growing up was Arminian. Also, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, and at at that time, 60, 70 years ago, it was extremely legalistic. Uh, we didn't we didn't dance we didn't go to movies everything was no everything was wrong everything was a sin and you know as growing up i probably got saved three or four times a year <laughs> mm-hmm. because with an armenian tradition you know you get saved but if you sin you lose your salvation so i think guys like you and i with that with that kind of background when you catch grace it's like this tremendous load is lifted off your shoulders mm-hmm. and the striving and the performance and the hoop jumping and everything that we thought we had to do to please God all of a sudden just dissipates. And you find this, this liberty and this freedom that leads you to um, an unbelievable intimate relationship with the father that you never knew existed. Well, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, your book is written in an enthusiastic style, just like your speaking is in an enthusiastic style. And it begins with a few revelations uh, that you had that kind of 
that were sort of the breakthrough revelations. And then you have five pillars that you, you've identified that you work with. So we'll start with the revelations, your personal revelations, and then we'll go to those five pillars. Okay, so the first in the book that you, you write, the first revelation, grace revealed in me was the fatherhood of God. For example, as a human father, would I ever, regardless of what my two daughters did to me, put them into an eternal customized torture chamber where they would be burned for eternity while I partied upstairs with my friends? Is that a good father? Absolutely not. Wouldn't a good father do all within his power to protect his children, preserve them, and make sure that ultimately their life changed so that eventually they would see the truth? As a result, my understanding of the depth and width of God's fatherhood took on a tremendously different dimension, and I began to see he was not just the father of believers, but the father of all. I was wondering if you could expand on this a little bit. Yeah, I this really fits the first pillar, which is... Um, the fatherhood of God. There's probably this is this is paramount because if we have a wrong view of the Father, we have really no foundation to build on. When I wrote the book Grace on Steroids, I, I used the title because uh, I'm kind of a gym rat. I, I, I go to the gym. I love going to the gym. And there's guys there, we call them juicers. They're on steroids and they're big and strong and all pumped up with muscles. And so I got a vision that when grace really is infused with the strength and the power that God has for it, mm-hmm. that it becomes paramount. So the first, when I, the first, everything, everything that I talk about in the book has a foundation of grace. If we don't get grace right, then there's nothing... I, that we that it leads to grace leads us to everything. That's my my experience, and yeah, we all said that we believed in grace with an Arminian background. I believed in grace. Uh, if if we loved God with all our heart, if we were committed, if we were dedicated, then yeah, God would smile on us and and give us favor. But when I when I got a hold of grace, the first thing that I began to see was the fatherhood of God and that he wasn't just my father, but he was everybody's father. When he created man in his image and likeness, he tied himself to humanity. Genesis 2, 7 says that he breathed into man the breath of life. So he breathed into man everything that he was, his very essence. Everything that he is, he breathed into man. And I don't find any place in scripture where he ever stopped creating man in his image and likeness. And Dave, you know, what's so amazing is when you get a hold of grace, you begin to see scriptures that you never saw before. Mm-hmm. There, there were times I pick up my Bible and I go, is this the same Bible that I've been reading all my life? For example, I, 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 calling this from memory, but I think it's Ephesians 4, 6, that says that there is one God and Father of all, right? who is above all, through in, all, through all, and, and, and in, in all. And in all. And when I saw that, I go, that does not fit the theology that I cut my teeth on. Right. But that that changed my my view of the Father that he that he was in all. And once I got that down, then it, it moves to the next revelation, which is the love of God. 
Uh, well, in, in the book, you say the next awakening for me was that I began meditating on the finished work of Jesus. And you write, as the Holy Spirit reveals to you, as he did to Paul, pure grace apart from effort, you will stop being Martha running around making a platter of sandwiches that Jesus never asked for. That's what I did for 50 years. I ran around doing good things, trying to please Jesus by doing what he never wanted. When I should have been like Mary, just sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him, and letting him impart who he is so that I would effortlessly believe, which would change me and ultimately change my life. When you become a Mary, not a Martha, your love for yourself, others, and the Father goes off the chart because you've seen and experienced his unconditional love, which has embraced you and drawn you into his life. This is grace. So right. say a little more about that. About about the finished work? Yeah. Uh, probably the three most powerful words that Jesus ever spoke from the cross was, it is finished. Um, I think what's powerful in that, those three words to me, everybody, everybody emphasizes the finished, which is important because that means it's done, complete, nothing we can add to it. Uh, which again, most of my life, I tried to add to what he finished. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't really believe that he finished it. It took my agreement. It took my endorsement. It took my uh, moving with him and accepting it. And then it was finished. So in reality, I was finishing the work. But the word it is really important in it is finished. And what I, I began to ask myself, or what are the it's? What is, it, what is it that he finished? And I began to look at what, the mission of Jesus was what Jesus said he would do, what the prophets foretold that he would do. And I've, I began to discover six or seven things that he actually, it was finished. It was finished. He came to give us life more abundantly. That's finished. So learning how to tap into that life is an adventure. It's a journey. It's intimacy with the Father, and that life is revealed. It is finished. Uh, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. In my background, I believe, yeah, he's, he was seeking the lost, but he sure didn't save all the lost. That was mm -hmm. my job to lead people. Mm -hmm. So when we come to the finished work of the cross, you have to take as one package that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So when I looked at the finished work of the cross, I had to ask myself a question. Was Jesus successful or was he not successful? Did he, did he finish what he said he would finish? Uh, John says that G, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's a finished work. Mm -hmm. There's nothing I can add to that. I, the, only, the only part that I have is to now understand it and let it be revealed to me and, let me, and begin to live it out and begin to walk it out. So the finished work of the cross was an important, important step. And I saw the fatherhood of God, then I began to see, okay, the, the work that he sent the son to do was really finished. There's, there's nothing I can add, add to it, which gives, us a, which gives us tremendous security and freedom because I, I'm, not, I'm no longer trying to finish what he said he finished. I'm not in a wrestling match with him to, to try to complete the work. I can totally rest, which is grace to me. Grace is a divine influence that produces effortless change 
as you rest in him. And I began to see effortless change come into my life as I rested in him because of the grace and the finished work of the cross began to really materialize in my life, changing me in ways that I hadn't been able to change in all of my efforts. So the finished work is a, is a, is a huge part of this. Absolutely. Uh, and before we get to the five pillars, there was one uh, sentence that you wrote that I just thought was really profound that I, I wanted to get your take on it. You wrote, most Western Christianity is built on the foundation of fear and separation from God. Yeah. And say a little bit more about what you meant by that. Well, again, uh, growing up again, uh, I was raised to believe that we were born separated from God. We were born in sin. We were born with an endemic nature. And then the whole journey was about getting back to God, trying to, trying to cross this chasm that was created by, by man's sin, by separation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every message was about fear that we would be eternally separated from God. So everything that we did, we tried to bridge the gap. We would chase, we were God chasers. There's a famous book that was written called God Chasers. And that pretty much summed up the Christian experience that I lived. I would, you know, I needed to push into the things of God. I needed to, I needed to birth and travail and, and, and bring to pass the things that God desired. And, you know, it's like God was standing there with his arms crossed. And if I did enough, then he would come to where I was. How many prayer meetings I attended? How many prayer meetings I, I had when I was a pastor, when we would ask God to come be with us, mm-hmm. which, which is saying there's a separation. You know, before every service, I would gather with the elders and we would pray, Father, we ask that you would come to this service. Bless us with your presence. And that's nothing more than an acknowledgement of saying God is separated from me. Well, the question is, how are you going to be separated from an omnipresent being? On one side of my mouth, I said God was omnipresent. On the other side of my mouth, I said we need to beg and plead and ask God to come be with us. You know, when we're um, you were talking a little bit about the fatherhood of God earlier and then the problem of separation that I remember when I was going through my own process on in all of this. And I looked again at Acts 17 and Paul was speaking to a group of pagans and saying, you know, we, we all uh, we're all God's children. You know, even your poets, even your poets know this. We're all God's children, and we are all live and move and have our being in God, and God is near to each one of us and just wants us to find, you know, just wants us to discover this, which was different than even, I I didn't go to church very much when I was growing up, but the message that I got when I went to church was that God was holy, and he was very angry at humanity because humanity had fallen into sin. And so he could he couldn't really stand to be around humanity. He was very 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 far away, right. and he, he had to send Jesus to us. And if we did just the right things in this life, we might be able to get get over to him. But he was very 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 far removed from us. Yeah, the whole idea of 
separation and fear were tools of manipulation and control that I I used. I didn't I didn't do it viciously or, or consciously. It's just the message that we had because everything was about afterlife, where you're going to spend eternity. Mm-hmm. So every message was about making sure uh, that we were right with God because of this separation that we perceived in our minds existed. And it all comes back to Adam. It all started with Adam. Um, you know, he created a God in his mind that was angry, that was separated from him, that was vindictive. And that was that was not the way the father was. He, In fact, he went looking for Adam. And Adam was hiding from God. Uh, so from the father's perspective, he was never separated from us, but we had a perception that Paul called in Colossians. He said we were alienated and separated in our minds by wicked works. So we were, you know, we didn't think it was in our minds. We thought it was a spiritual separation. That's that's what we were fed, that Adam died spiritually. Well, that's that's not even reasonable. How does a spirit die? How does how does a God-imparted spirit breathed into you? How does it how does it die? But you know, we just never asked questions. And if you asked any questions, you were told, well, be careful, you're gonna get into error. No, that's not right, that's not correct. So we were just parrots. I was a parrot for everything that I had been taught in seminary. Mm-hmm. Well, you were comes- just you were just passing on the best that you knew and the best that you understood and you were in a world where that was reinforced in every possible way. So it's hard to think outside of that. And and I think that's where most, there are a lot of people that are still in that, that position that every week they hear a, a message on that is really confirmational biasness that just reinforces what they've always been taught. And they're afraid to come out of the box I had a pastor the other day call me and he said, you know, I'm reading your book. He said, I'm, I'm, he was an assembly of God man, pastor. He said, I'm literally reading it in the closet because I don't want my wife to even know I'm reading this. He said, what you're saying I know is true. But he said, if I were to say this in church, I would lose my church. I would lose my retirement. And so there, see, that's a fear element. That fear is right. so ingrained that we don't want to. Uh, do anything that's going to make God irate, angry. Yeah, that's one reason I think that this uh, grace message is really going to take off because in the next 20 years, think of the number of people that will retire oh. and will be finally will be free to be able yes. to, to, to say this. I, I know I was fortunate to be in a denomination called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And in our denomination, we accepted people on a basic profession of faith and we didn't have one theology that everybody had to agree to. We encouraged everybody to pursue their own best understanding of God as we together follow Jesus to the best of our understanding. So no limit was ever put on how good we could think God was. But most of the people that would come to the church came from some type of background that had that separation anxiety in it. And I realized that I was preaching a message of spiritual growth that even though I didn't intend it, still was uh, promoting that idea of separation. So I started preaching that salvation is by grace alone. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We just enjoy and discover ever more how much the love and the grace and the mercy of God has come to us 
in Christ. And so spiritual growth isn't for us to earn salvation. It's for us to experience the goodness of the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us. And, and I started, I started doing that and I started having, you know, really good uh, results from that. But then I realized, well, you know, a Calvinist uh, minister can't really say that because the Calvinist <laughs> minister, you know, has some limitations and the Arminian minister can't really say those things because they have some limitations. And so I was just in a fortunate place where I could do this and I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was able to continue to grow in my understanding of grace. But most people who are in ministry and a lot of people who are in seminary situations, if their understanding of grace grows to this point, it could threaten their livelihood, their family. I, yes. I talk I talk with scholars sometimes who are in academic positions and they would love to be able to say the types of things that I'm saying. But they tell me that if they do, you know, they could lose their job and, uh, and, you know, they've got a mortgage and they've got a family to take care of. And so those types of concerns really weigh on them, but hopefully in the next, you know, 20, 30 years, so many people will now get out from under that. And this message will have, because of work that you're doing and others, uh, this message will have enough support that people will be able to start talking about it more openly. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of younger men begin to move into this. I think some of us that were older, I fought that. I mean, I, I started the church I was pastoring. I started in 1980. I had been a Nazarene pastor uh, in my early days, but I came to Houston and started a church in 1980. So when I got a hold of this in in uh, 2000, <clears throat> that entered my mind that I've trained all these people one way, and now. I remember the Sunday I stood before my church. I said, listen, guys, I'm seeing some things I've never seen before. And I'm going to begin to teach on some things that might stretch you a little bit. Well, that first year, I probably lost 500 people. I lost my whole staff of I had five pastors on staff full time. And they would come to me and they'd say, Pastor, this is this is heresy. You're teaching this and you're teaching that and try to put a label on it. And all I was doing was teaching what I felt that God was revealing, but they they were just not ready ready to hear it. So there is that fear. But there came a day that I said, you know what? I stepped over the line. I said, there's no returning on this. I know that I know that I know this is right. And so when you cross that line and you don't vacillate anymore, I think that's a big turning point. And a lot of the guys in ministry today that have been in there for a long time that are looking at or academic academics in seminary, you know, they're, they're looking at what they've built up over a lifetime. And it is really hard for them to make that step. But I think even with them, if they would yield themselves to it, there would be a time that God will give them the boldness, the strength to be able to stand for what they're seeing. But there's a lot of younger men coming into this that I'm really encouraged by. Well, let's talk, let's move on to the five pillars of the grace culture that you okay. describe in your book, and I like that term, the grace culture. That that kind of permeates your your work. And this the, the first pillar covers a little bit of ground that we've we've already yeah. talked about. But pillar one is a correct perception of God, and, and then you name this big problem which faces us when we try to get a picture of God, and that is that 
Western evangelicalism began with two men who said that Scripture was the absolute authority for their perception of God, and yet they have two absolutely opposing views of what (laughs) God is like. Both John Wesley and John Calvin said their beliefs were based solely on Scripture, but cannot agree on what God is like. One loves everybody, but he's powerless to save them. The other one does not love everybody, but he will save the ones he loves, no matter what. So (laughs) tell us a little bit more, because I've noticed the same thing. Tell us a little bit more about this. Well, uh, Wesley actually came with, was an Arminian background. He's he's probably the guy that really got Arminianism stoking and going in the Reformation. And when you're an Arminian, a Calvinist looks absolutely crazy to say that God predestined some to heaven and some to hell, and there's nothing they can do about the sovereign choice of God. It's it's limited atonement. Calvinists have five points, acronym TULIP, which we won't get into. But um, when you when you're a Calvinist, you look at our, an Arminian, and you look. Well, God can't love everybody because he's predestined some. So when a Calvinist looks at scripture, every all the good stuff, they say, well, yeah, that applies to those that are predestined. For example, Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Well, a Calvinist would look and say, yeah, that's true for those that he's predestined. And an Armenian would look at that verse and say, well, that's true for all of those that accept him. So they have the ability to just skirt around the the scriptures. And that's been the great divide in the Western church is between those two theological thoughts. And there's variations of both of them. You know, uh, there are Baptist churches that, that would be somewhat Calvinistic and once saved, always saved, but they probably wouldn't go so far as, you know, God is adamantly, determine who's going to heaven and who's going to hell ahead of time. But a Calvinist would say, yeah, God is absolutely sovereign. And then an Arminian would say, well, God's sovereignty never violates your free will. You have you have your choice. You have your, your will to make. So all of these, I think, give us an incorrect perception of the Father. Um, Jesus came, I think, for two basic reasons. First of all, to show us who the Father is. And we're going to have to come back. We're going to have to come back to what Jesus demonstrated. Uh, There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that I think the writers were looking through a glass darkly, writing with all the revelation they had, but certainly don't coincide with the, the Father that Jesus revealed. Jesus said, no one has seen the Father at any time except the Son. And if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So a right perception of the fatherhood of God is the one that Jesus presented, the one that Jesus fully reflected. And I I think that we come back to that and we then begin, that leads to other things. But for me, grace, grace opened up that door of the fatherhood of God, a correct view of the Father. That he's, that he's a lover of all people, that he's, as I said earlier in the book, there's nothing my two daughters could do to make me not love them. There's nothing they could do that I would ever put them in a torture chamber to twist and burn in fire forever 
because I love them, even if they don't reciprocate. Mm-hmm. We we make we make the father's love. We call it unconditional, but we put conditions on it. Well, I notice that some people will say, "Well, God is the creator of all people, but not the father of yes. all people," and as if creator is a lesser category than father. And I actually have come to see that creator is a greater category in the sense that as a father, you have limited, uh, you're somewhat limited as a human father, you're somewhat limited in, in, the, in the world and what happens to the, you know, your daughters and, sure. and those types of things. But if you were both the, uh, their father and their creator, if you made the entire world, if you knew the end from there, from the beginning, if there was nothing that could finally frustrate your ultimate will for them, well, then um, you would be responsible for their well-being in a way that an earthly father could not be because just didn't have control over all of those issues. So for me, I've come to see that, that, that father, once I understood God as that perfect father, that really helped me to understand the love of God for me. And then once I fully understood God as creator, you know, then that even gave me more confidence that God's ultimate purposes for me and for everyone else would not finally fail. Yeah. Uh, Coming to a revelation that the father is unconditional love, that there's no other definition for him, but love. And Paul said, love never fails. So there's no way that the father can fail in the dealing with his sons. But once, once you be, for me, when I began to look at the Father through the lens of Jesus only, I looked at Jesus said, forgive your enemies. So a good father would act in accordance. Yeah, so forgive your enemies so that you might be like your Father in heaven. Yes, exactly. So he doesn't teach us to forgive our enemies while he tortures his. So exactly, as your father is in heaven. Exactly. That just see those things we never we never looked at, did we? I mean, it was there. Why didn't we see it? Why, <laughs> why did all these verses escape us? As we had a blinder on, we had a well, veil over our face. Yeah, I think it's like you talked a little bit about confirmation bias. Is that once you get a certain lens on, and you're looking at scripture you will tend to look at scriptures through that lens. And the problem is, is that after you look at scripture so long through that lens, you don't even realize you're using a lens anymore. And that's just a, that's just a process of trying on a different lens. Sometimes I tell people, um, well, you know, just give yourself a moment, put on a new set of glasses for a moment. And, and look at scripture from this perspective and see if there's some different scriptures that pop out to you or if some old scriptures that you knew start sounding a little or start striking you in different ways. I think one of the problems that we've had, and I don't know how far you want to go after this, I think we have made the scripture the fourth member of the Godhead. Yes. And, and Jesus said, that the spirit of truth would lead us into all truth. So in my life, I have, I have come to see my primary source of truth no longer as the scripture, but the spirit of truth that abides within. 
and I give him leeway. I give the spirit of truth leeway to unveil and reveal. Now, I, I, love, I use my Bible, love my Bible. When I teach, I probably use 10, 12 scriptures every time. But I'm learning. I'm lear- For me, it's been a flip-flop of the, the spirit of truth having a priority and the scriptures is more of a pointer to Jesus and a pointer to the Father. But I have given much more place than I ever have in my entire life to the dealing of the spirit of truth. I mean, let's be honest. Jesus didn't say he was going to leave us a book. Mm-hmm. He didn't say he was going to leave us a theology. He said the spirit of truth would lead you into all truth. The problem, Dave, is, first of all, we've never learned to have confidence in the spirit of truth that is within us. And second of all, those of us that teach and pastor or have home groups or whatever, we've never taught people how to follow that spirit of truth. We've never taught people how to hear it for ourselves and then have confidence in it. Here's what happens. The, the pastor will come every week and say, God told me this message that I'm bringing you, God, God said. But the people that are sitting there in the chairs, if they come and say, God said, or God told me, or God's revealing, pastor goes, wait a minute. <laughs> you right. need to be careful about God telling you something. And yet we turn, so we, we the superstar can say God said, but everybody else in the church can't say God said because they might be wrong. So I, I think there's a, that's part of the change that grace is, is affecting today is because of grace, we can be comfortable. Well, if, it goes a little bit back to an insight in the Protestant Reformation about the priesthood of all believers. Yes. In the sense that, that, that we can have some type of direct interaction and relationship with God, and we don't have to go through intermediaries. Yes. But then what happened over time is as things became more organized and structured, well, then there became authorities and uh and a whole set, a whole authority structure that then became, oh, well, now we're supposed to listen to this authority. Now we're supposed to listen to this authority structure. And so what I, what I like to say is I I could not do this. I could not argue this if I did not, if I couldn't make a plausible case from scripture for it. But what I found is as I've, the more that I've gone along in this, the more I'm able to identify within myself, a spirit of resonance with the truth of God's love and goodness and mercy. And that has, that has really, that gaining confidence in that has really helped me to grow spiritually. Yeah. I, I have found that if I, if I try to debate someone based on scripture, it's fruitless because there's so many views of scripture. I mean, we just talked about Arminians and Calvinists, mm-hmm. uh, a Pentecostal and a Baptist. A Baptist would say all the gifts ceased, where a Pentecostal would say, no, wait a minute, they're alive today. We function in the gifts. So there's, what, 40,000 denominations all <laughs> claiming to have the Bible as their foundation and what the Bible clearly says, and yet no two can agree. So I, well, I I just think there's a little shift going on today where we're learning to trust the spirit of truth that's within us to well, a greater next, degree. The next pillar that you talk about is that God is relational. And you write, God is absolutely relational. 
This is the revelation you must bury deep within your heart. The triune God is a relational God above everything else. Everything he does is relational. The Bible starts with a relational God in Genesis 1-1, and in the book of Revelation, it ends in a relationship. The Trinity and the culture of grace is about acceptance. It's about being loved apart from performance, embraced by his unconditional love, and brought into his very life. The reflection of the Father in Jesus is absolutely relational. So could you tell us more about that? <laughs> yeah, I think we've been talking about a lot of this uh, mm-hmm. already, but the life that Jesus lived reflects the way that we are to live. Jesus, Jesus came to show us the Father, but he also came to show us to ourselves as to how our life should unfold. And there's no question that, that Jesus walked in an intimate relationship with the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. And I think that becomes that becomes a pattern for us, which, which brings me to leaving the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and coming back to the tree of life. The tree of life, to me, is basically responding to what the Father says. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where most of us have lived all of our life, are making self-determinations of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what I should do, what I shouldn't do. But when Jesus walked with the Father, he only did what he saw the Father do, only said what he heard the Father say. He didn't make those determinations. He made the determinations based on what the Father was speaking to him. So in order for him to, to know what the Father was speaking to him, he had, he had to have an intimate relationship with the Father. So if we're going to come back to that, that Jesus life to be as he is in this present world, it's going to require that we leave this tree of knowledge of good and evil over here and we begin to beat a path over back to the tree of, of life which is a dependence on the spirit of truth, giving it precedence in our life. And the only way that we can tap into that, I have found, is if I spend a lot of time with the Father and understand that he desires to spend time with me. My whole prayer life, David, has changed. I used to, I used to have a set time every morning. I, spent the, I would go to our church prayer room. We had a beautiful prayer room. I'd spend the first hour of the day in prayer. And if I didn't do that, I felt guilty. I felt bad. But I was praying to a sky God out there to come help me, to mm-hmm. come see me through the day. But my following the pattern of Jesus, my prayer life now is a continual walking and talking back and forth all day long. And there's not a situation that I encounter, whether it's driving to the store, Father, which route's a good route to take today? How do you want, you know? Help me to get around the traffic. Show me the route to take. Or what should I be teaching? Show, uh, give me some, give me some insight. Give me some help here. Uh, to me, it's a running conversation. Prayer is a running conversation that is a lot more listening than it is talking. So when I spend time with him, mostly I'm listening. I'm not talking. I mean, what am I going to tell him? <laughs> I, I need to hear what he has to say, where before my prayer life was all talking, very little listening. I, I would tell him what I need, what I have to have. I need the rent. I need, you know, I need this. The church payments are due. God, come help us do it. Now, 
It's more of a, of a listening and a walking and a daily conversation. And I think that mirrors the life of Jesus. And that's a, that's a huge transition for people, mm-hmm. huge transition. Well, um, one of the things that I think frightens people about their relationship with God is the way that they read the book of Revelation. And, and it kind of gives them a picture that, well, I'll do my best in this life. And then I'll get, we'll wait till we get to the final judgment and I'll find out if my name is written in that book or not. (laughs) And if my name is not written in the book, then God will pitch me into the eternal fire or the lake of fire, which people then associate with hell in some way. And then, um, but you write in the book, uh, with regard to the book of Revelation, you write, death is not the end of the story. What kind of puny little God would we have if death was the end of the story? Our good father is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He's present right there at the city gates, and he's telling them to come in. In fact, Revelation chapter 21, verse verse 25 says, Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. And And then you make the note, there shall be no night there. So, Tell us a little bit more about how you came to see the book of Revelation as having a more positive, hopeful ending. Right. Well, first of all, I, uh, I wrote a book called Hell's Illusion, and I think I think we've totally misunderstood the book of Revelation. Coming back to the fear and separation, we have used the book of Revelation to enforce fear and separation from God, the fear of separation from God eternally. Um and the lake, the lake of fire, it didn't take a lot of research to begin to see that our God is a consuming fire. And what here, here's what's interesting about that, that little picture you painted. It's, it says in Revelation that it lists a whole group of people. You know, all the sinners are thrown into the lake of fire. The liars, the che- cheaters, the whoremongers, all of them are thrown into the lake of fire. Well, in my upbringing, that was hell. I mean, you were lost forever. But there's a there's an interesting thing that takes place that nobody ever taught me. That is in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 15. Mysteriously, all these people that were in the lake of fire show up outside the gates of the city. Yeah. And, all, and ver- all of a sudden, and, yeah. yeah, all of a sudden they're out there. Yeah, in a verse. So if they were thrown in the lake of fire for eternal conscious torment, how'd they end up outside the gates of the city? And then in verse 17, it says that the spirit and the bride are saying, come on in, come on in, drink of the water freely. You're, you're able to, to come on in. So for, for me, it does take a decision. It's a choice that you make to come into the city. But as, as, as Revelation says, the gates to the city never shut. They're always wide open. They're always they're always calling us in. Now I think that does take a decision, does take a choice, and that's probably where I separate maybe from what we would label universalist. I, I believe that Jesus is the way, and that ultimately, you know, He's the one we make a decision for. But the 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 opportunity is always present. And I right. don't think I, I don't think anybody once they're purged by the love of God, the fire of God, everything is burned away. They're standing. Up. I don't think anybody's going to resist the call to come into the city. I just it, it doesn't seem reasonable. Yeah, 
Well, there's a and there's debates about what you call this uh, theology. If if the word, if the term universalism is attached to it, I insist that the word Christian always be attached to it as well, because it's not some kind of mere yeah. uh, universalism. It is distinctively it's distinctively Christian, and everything depends on this. And we just trust that God is able to bring about um, a situation in which the person is brought to a state of clarity and understanding and freed from the delusion of sin in such a way that they are able to uh, think rightly and choose and choose yeah. well and that they will they will do that because uh, they're in their right they're in their right minds at that point so it's not a denial of free will i heard right. it put this way that somebody said um, i don't believe in free will as much as i believe in freed will yeah that yeah. once our wills are freed and we are set free from the slavery and bondage to sin, then we can come home as was always intended. See, if a free will, if it was totally free, there would be no influence. There would be no uh, uh, pushing in one direction or another. You know, we were always told we had a free will. But the free will was not really free because it was influenced by fear, by separation, by holding the gun of hell to your head. That's not a free will decision. That's an influence choice. But I think that once we move to the other side, <clears throat> all of those things are gone and will does become really absolutely free. Yes. So, hey, man, let's be honest. God wired us from the very beginning, to choose him, to choose love. And we've just been sabotaged by a, a lot of garbage and religious thinking that has diluted and put a veil over our eyes to see the simplicity of grace and the inclusion in the fatherhood of God and all the good things that we've been talking about. I mean, the gospel's good news. There's no bad news in the good news. As soon as you put bad news in it, it's not the gospel. Yeah, I like to. Uh, I, I remember when I started seeing that passage in First John that God is light, yeah, not just light. God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. Yes, I think the Passion Translation says no trace of darkness at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on to the second pillar in your book, which is oh God is love. A culture in this uh, collective. Um, uh, a culture is the collective thinking of a group of people, you write. Given enough time, one culture can influence and supplant another, and we're seeing that take place in, now in our world. Those who have embraced grace, the finished work of the cross, inclusion, unconditional love, and mercy that endures forever, are developing a revolutionary grace culture that is influencing our world and evaporating the culture of man-made religion. It is a tsunami of grace. I thought that was a powerful statement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, love never fails. Love is, love is what he's beginning to show us. When I, and you probably noticed the same thing too, the deeper you go in grace, the more love you have for other people and the more grace you extend to people. And yourself. And your, oh, absolutely yourself. You can't, you can't really love other people until you love yourself. So if you see yourself as this, this old rotten sinner, 
maybe trying to get through the pearly gates by the skin of your teeth. That's why you're going to see other people too. And when, when you grab grace, when grace becomes part of your DNA, uh, I noticed a huge change in the way I saw people, even other Christians. There was no more them and us, uh, insider, outsider. Uh, Paul said, don't know anybody after the flesh. And I think grace enables us to do that, to not see fleshly actions even, which is part of unconditional love. Unconditional love doesn't see fleshly actions. God, God doesn't love us based on what we do. He loves us based on who we be, which are his children. And that's the lens that he looks at us through. Well, that, that leads us nicely to pillar three, which <laughs> is the inclusion of all. You write, Jesus was sent as the Savior to all with the pronouncement of peace on earth and goodwill for everybody. No yeah. one was left out. So as a grace community, when we consider the life and the ministry of Jesus that began in his birth, we understand that the purpose of his coming was to embrace humanity, bringing us into the very life of God himself. And it was good news for everybody. That's the foundation of everything we are to believe as a grace community. This revelation is what separates the grace community from the religious community. And I, uh, that is a tension that you work in your book, the grace community versus the religious community. Yeah. I, I mean, the grace community extends grace. It extends love. Uh, I think the grace community sees sin as a disease that needs to be healed and not a wrong that needs to be punished. The only reason I think that we uh, have been deluded is because of a wrong identity. And I think we'll probably get to that one next. But um, when, when you see yourself wrong, you're going to live wrong. The grace community, as opposed to the religious community, does not have a them and us, an insider, outsider. And you, did, you, did, you really nailed it with Acts chapter 17 when Paul is talking to idol worshipers. Yes. Idol worshipers. They had no concept. In fact, Paul said the God that you worship that you call the unknown God is actually the God I'm talking to you about. So it was a matter that they, had, they hadn't got the revelation yet. And the difference between the grace community and religious community is I think that we have gotten a revelation of what they also will get. But as a grace community, I don't use it to uh, separate myself. I don't use what I see to belittle other people wherever they're at in the journey. Uh, I think we, we include, we embrace, and we let the Father do the work that he needs to do and let the spirit of truth begin to unveil. It, it was such a relief to me to know that I didn't have to go out and save the world that, in fact, John nailed it. And two verses scripture I never saw, one in Gospel of John that says, indeed, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And in First John, he says the same thing, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Well, there again, a Calvinist would say, yeah, that's true for those that are predestined. And an Armenian would say, yeah, that's for those that accept him. He is the Savior of everybody that accepts him. Yeah, I've, 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 I've said that it seems to me, ironically, that you can be a Christian and call Jesus the Savior of the world as long as 
you don't believe he will actually save the world. <laughs> it, because if you say that you actually believe he will save the world, well, then you can't be a Christian. You just, you call him that with the understanding that you know that that's not what he is actually going to do. Exactly. So it comes, it comes back to, to believing that Jesus, was Jesus successful or was he not successful? So when he, way back when we started today, we talked about it is finished. So if it's finished, then he is who he said he was, which is the savior of the world. I mean, even John, what is it? John chapter one, verse 29, John looks at Jesus, points and says, right there's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Paul said that he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses. Right. To and them. in Greek, you know, in Greek, as you know, that word is cosmos. Yes. Which is even which has a lot of depth of meaning that our English word word Absolutely. our English word world doesn't capture. It's much wider, much broader. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, pillar four is mercy that endures forever. And you write, inclusion says very simply simply, that all of humanity was included. There was nobody excluded. All were included in everything that Christ did in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Inclusion says that not only did he do this for you, but he did it as you. You yes. were co-crucified, co-buried, yes. co-resurrected, co-ascended, and co-seated. He mystically pulled all humanity into himself throughout the entire process, we simply need to wake up to this reality. Man, if if we could just get on the rooftop and shout that, that is the gospel. That 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 is the good news. So, um, what was the last part that you said? What, I, I'm, I was my mind was going when you were talking, and I, I think I missed what you were driving at here. <laughs> well, you said you just wrote you were co-crucified, co-buried, yes. co-resurrected, co-ascended, and co-seated. He mystically pulled all humanity into himself throughout the entire process, and yes. we simply need to wake up to this reality. Absolutely. Well, Peter says that we were begotten again. That word is ananageo, means to be birthed again through the resurrection. So when I was born again, it was at the resurrection. We have not we have not co-included humanity in religious thinking. We we read the scripture Galatians two twenty. We're crucified with Christ. We're buried with Christ. We uh, rose with Christ. We ascended with Christ. But there again, it takes. We think that it takes our agreement, our our acceptance. Uh, we got to put something to it. But if we can just take that at face value. That puts people in a place of a happy dance, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. That takes all the all of all of our doing out of it and lets us see that he absolutely did everything that he said he would do. I've that that those those thoughts to me, man, that that turned my life upside down. It just turned my life upside down. When I knew that I was resurrected, I became a new creation. I walked out of the tomb with him. As a new creation, all things passed away. All things became new at that time. I didn't have to pray the magic prayer. I didn't have to be water baptized. Wow, that's powerful. But again, religion's going to fight that. Right. I used to, when I would teach a pastor's class on on baptism, I would say, "You're, you're not going to be. You're not being baptized so that now God loves you, or now you're included 
in God's loving purposes for you and for the world. Baptism means that you have now awakened to the good to yes. the goodness of Jesus and you intentionally want to make a decision to follow him for the rest of your life. And uh, this baptism process is is a way of you uh, waking up to this, being born into this understanding to come and to claim it for your own. So I would explain it that way. I think oftentimes what we call the born again experience was in reality just a waking up. It was just beginning to see the truth, but we tied it to an experience when really it's a discovery. Well, this pillar five that you have, uh, which is this is, is really a waking up, uh, I think, is yeah. identity as divinity. And you write, we have yet to scratch the surface of what we look like as the new creation because of his resurrection. When we were co-resurrected with Jesus, we came from death to life. We walked out of the tomb with him, and that was our born-again experience. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3 that we were born again through the resurrection. Everything Jesus did, he didn't do just for us, he did as us. His resurrection was our resurrection. It's time to begin seeing ourselves as the Father sees and values us. Genesis 2.7 says, And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What does that mean? That means God took the very essence of who he is and placed it in mankind. Every part of God, the breath, spirit, and the inner being of God, he placed within mankind. And right there, that sets a value on us. For most of us, we've not even considered or thought about. Seeing and valuing ourselves, as God does, is a difficult jump for many of us that have come out of perhaps decades or a lifetime of religion. So... Tell us a little bit more about this. I think everything revolves around identity. Until you have a right identity of yourself, you're not going to live right. If you want to to change the way you live, you have to change the way you believe. And uh, again, I never saw the verse that says that we are a partaker of the divine nature. So that becomes my identity. I'm not an old sinner saved by grace. I'm not who the church said I was. I'm not who my teacher said I was. I'm not who my family says I was. I am who God says I am, which is a child of his image and likeness. Never been, never been retracted from me. That's who I've always been. So I totally agree with you. That is a point of, of discovery of waking up to see who we, who we've always been. We were, we tried so hard to become who we already were. Right. Which goes back to the tree, isn't it? When when the serpent tempted Eve, it was to become what she already was. Right. I, I, I started to say that spiritual growth is not the process of me becoming who I'm not. Yes. And spiritual growth is the process of me becoming who I am. Yes. And, and the more we realize that, the more we have confidence, the more boldness we have, uh, the less we are concerned about what people say about us. All of that vanishes. So when I look at these these five pillars, they all build on the foundation of grace. Until I understand grace, uh, actually, I think grace is merited favor. We merit it based on what Jesus did as us. I used to always call it unmerited favor, which I understand it. But really, it is merited because of what he's done. I merit his grace. Uh, there's no reason I can't have his grace. I'm good enough to have it. So yeah. once we get that foundation down, and I, I saw the fatherhood of God, 
perfect father uh, in all, unconditional love, inclusion, mercy that endures forever, and identity as divinity. I'm telling you what, that's that's those pillars then set a foundation, set set a stage where I can really begin to grow with confidence. Yeah, so, sometimes sometimes I can get a little frustrated with present David, and I'll say to myself, well. Eternal David is is destined to be finally fully perfected in God and in union, and that there won't that God will not be satisfied uh, to let anything that is not of love's kind to finally yeah. be part of eternal David. And so God will help me, and and we'll get through this. But just believing that 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 current David is on the way and is in progress, oh, yeah. and ultimately there will be a, a victory, a complete victory there. Has allowed me to to not to to, to be more gracious to myself, yes. but also to be more gracious to everybody else because yes. everybody else is their current self, which is not yes. perfect. So then that released me from any sense of needing to judge other people or to be angry with other people because I began to see myself in them as well. And I I would think to myself, well, if I had walked their path, maybe I would be you know in about the same yeah. place they are yeah. right now. So. Yeah. All of those, all of those realities really uh, freed me up. And once I once I looked around at the world and I thought, "Wow, all of these other people that I'm seeing are my eternal brothers and sisters that have been successfully incorporated into Christ, and He is working with them in His own time and His own ways. And God will have a way of pulling this all together throughout whatever ages may come. And I can trust in that. It's that the world just started shining to me." in a very different kind of way. You know, that mercy that endures forever, that gives us a long view of what God can do. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, his mercies are new every morning. So his mercies endures forever. We have made death the end of the story. Why did, whatever did we do that for? Because of the message of fear and separation that you better make sure it's right when you die because that's the end of the story. But when you get a long view mm-hmm. that his mercy endures forever, I'll tell you what, it takes the pressure off. It takes the heat off. I might not be happy with the present Don, but like you said, there's a point in time because of his mercy enduring forever that he will bring me to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I, 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 I just was reading in John chapter three, verse two, and I never saw this before. John three, two says, beloved, now are we the children of God and it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we'll see him as he is. So we always made kind of being a child of God all there was to it. But I'm looking at that verse and I'm going, now we're the children of God, yet it has not been revealed what we shall be. There's something beyond just being that child of God. It's seeing him as he is and then being conformed exactly to the way he is. But the key there is to see him as he is, which is going to require for a lot of us to get rid of our religious blinders. Mm-hmm. To, to drop our theology and just begin a pursuit of him. Um, go ahead. Well, as I've, as I've tried to understand uh, your work, it seems to me that 
you don't like being labeled. I think I heard you say, or that you may have written that people use labels to label you then to dismiss you. Yeah. But let me ask you this. How do you envision the realization of God's ultimate purposes? Do you anticipate an ultimate state of fulfillment in which God is all in all, as in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and Jesus has effectively drawn all people to himself, as uh, John twelve thirty two says? Sure. I'm, um, yeah, I think going back to Revelation 22, 15 and 17, I do think it requires a choice. To, I'm, I'm a Jesus guy. Um, I think Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the ultimate pathway that we follow. But that that choice is never taken. We can always come in the city. So I can't imagine. It might take a trillion years. I don't know for some hardcore person. Mm-hmm. It, it might take some time. But I can't. I can't envision if love never fails. It can't fail one time for one person. So. If in my understanding, I think it's a God just takes the love dial and just keeps turning it hotter and hotter and hotter until you get it. And at some point in time, you're going to get it. Right. And I think that God can, I heard one person uh, say they were concerned that Christian universalism means that God tortures people into heaven. (laughs) And, or it said that God waterboards people into heaven. And I think what you're talking about is, no, it's a gradual process, you know, in which um, in in which people all of a sudden begin to see themselves as they as they really are. I think of kind of like the story of of Scrooge, you know, he um, it was a gradual process that he became finally became more and more aware of what his true situation, his predicament, uh, his predicament was maybe I don't know, you know. Scrooge wakes up in the morning and he says, could this have all happened in one night? Well, you know, I guess it, I guess it could, you know, so I don't know how we even would gauge time in, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a situation in which we're sort of beyond or outside of time. I know that some of the early church fathers thought that, well, there would be ages and ages and ages. And then at the end of the ages, God would finally be all in all, and we would be delivered from the ages because the aeons or the ages would have fulfilled yeah. their purposes. Yeah. And, and then I know some people that say, well, you know, who knows what happens at the point of death? People talk about these near-death experiences and these life reviews, and people say that they can have a whole life review and, and gain almost instantaneous understanding of their lives in, in just a moment. So... I don't know if it happens. And I, don't know, I don't know how to think about the time part of it, whether it happens in a moment or whether it happens over ages and ages. But some way, it's a choice that's not forced upon us, but it is a choice that in, that gradually makes its impression upon sure. us in such a way that we're able to wake up and and be and, and be delivered from whatever delusion of mind has has been holding us back. I think of I. I I think of Paul on the Damascus Road, and if a person has that level of revelation that Paul had, Saul to Paul, mm-hmm. as inbred and deep in religion as he was, it only took a revelation on the level that the Father knew that he needed to bring him to where he needed to be. And I, I the Father knows each of us. He knows how he he uh, he pre he he pre-wired us and 
I, I think he knows exactly which buttons to push and which situations to arise throughout whatever time it takes to bring us to that point where every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is really the Lord. So I have a lot of hope. I don't yeah. think, I don't think, I, I, I don't think we need to think about it too hard. We just need to trust the father to know what he's doing to bring it to a successful conclusion. Well, one of the things that you, I guess if you come to this understanding, you, there could be a little bit of discouragement and you could feel a little bit of lo- a little bit of aloneness because maybe it might be hard to find somebody else that's thinking this way. Yeah. But uh, instead of being discouraged about this, I have, I have been encouraged to think, you know, I'm, I'm 62 and I have hopefully many more years now to get to work on this Absolutely. and to be, and to be a part of it. But it's not something that I have to be anxious about because it's, it's happening whether I participate it, in it or not. Right. I'm just enjoying getting to be a part of this tsunami of grace that you're talking about. And I like, it's very encouraging for me to look around and to see, oh, somebody's written a new book on grace. And so I got your book and I read your book and I thought, okay, well, here's another example that that this is happening and I don't have to make it happen. It's, it's already happening. I just get to participate in it and, uh, in whatever way through my podcast, I can let other people know about, um, other places that they can go to hear this kind of message. So as we're concluding, why don't you just tell people a little bit more about how they can access um, your community and the things that you are offering. Okay. Well, if you go to my website, which is simply donkeithley.com, everything is pretty well laid out there. The Sunday morning digital cathedral, the Facebook live. Uh, I don't think we have the uh, Grace Awakening Network link up there yet, but we'll, we'll get that soon. But Pretty much everything that I'm involved with, you can get right off the website. I do have, actually, I wrote one book after Grace on Steroids. It's a book on Galatians. Uh, And it's, you know, Galatians is a great study on grace. And I've got one coming out next month on Ephesians. So then after that, I'm going to work on Philippians and Colossians. I really wanted to have a trilogy of what I felt was the heart and soul of Paul's message of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So we will have those come out. All those books are on the website or you can go to Amazon, just type in my name and all the books will, will appear. Well, it's, it's, um, uh, I, I tell people I'm in the, I'm in the beginning process of being an old person at 62. You know, I say I'm the youngest old person, you know, but what, what's exciting to me is I see people that are a little further along in the aging process, you know, than I am. But I see somebody like yourself who is energized and enjoying life and has great purpose and who is who is interested in helping as many people as they can and leaving a good legacy um, in their life. And so that has made me think that, well, if if that's what aging can be, if I can be full of purpose and meaning and vitality and excited about life um, like you are. Well, there's, there can be an exciting time there for us still. Next month, I'll be uh, double sevens, 77. Okay. And, right. and the guy I like to hang with is Malcolm Smith. 
He's 85. And Malcolm, <laughs> Malcolm's still burning with the, with the gospel. He's still pushing. He's such a great guy. He comes to Houston every couple of months, so we always go to lunch together. And I always marvel at, at his exuberance over the scripture and over this message. So, man, at 60, you're 62? Right. So you, got, you got a long time to go and enjoy well, this, this trip. Well, it's this uh it's this fullness of life thing that you're yeah. that you're talking about that once you get it that the idea isn't just that oh after we die we're going to experience yeah. fullness of life but the idea is that is that the kingdom is now the fullness of life is now in a sense in not although in its perfected state we can begin to sort of live the life of heaven yeah. right now on as Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in in heaven and then right. once you take all of that, those ideas, and you add it into this grace culture, this this new understanding that is, uh, it's, I won't call it a new understanding. It seems more like a little bit of a revival yeah. of an earlier way that was understood, but that we lost sight of in Western, especially in the Western Christian experience. And now we're recovering something that, that used, to, used to be more widely known. Yeah. It's a restoration of all things, access. And that's, I think, what we're seeing is a restoration of all things. Well, it's been really encouraging to uh, get to uh, read your book and to have this conversation with you. And I hope that if people feel uh, led to by the spirit of truth, <laughs> that, uh, that they will uh, that they will look at your things and, and that they will, that, that in their spirit of truth, they will be able to see if that resonates with them with them or not. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much, Don. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.